Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We make keeping up with the literature easy. It's like having the latest research spoon-fed to you through your earbuds. So here's a quick review of everything that we'll be covering today. First off, antibiotics for packed noses. Next, the truth about L-type COVID-19. After that, choosing IV catheters, long or really, really long. Then UTI bugs fighting back. And finally, stopping stoners from hyperemesis with haloperidol. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the capable Drew Clare, Vivian Lay, and Clay Smith. And without further ado, we'll get onto the first article, which was titled Utilization of Prophylactic Antibiotics After Nasal Packing for Epistaxis, out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Most of the time in the ER, it's your job to actually remove foreign objects from patients' noses. But epistaxis packing is one of those exceptions. Given the fear that's been established by things like tampons causing sepsis, well, this is kind of similar, except it's, you know, in your nose. So to combat that nightmare, well, it's common practice to prescribe antibiotics after packing. However, this might be one of those things that we do more for ourselves than really for our patients. A prior meta-analysis has already shown no benefit, but most studies were not done in the emergency department context. This was a single-center retrospective study of 275 episodes of epistaxis in 224 unique patients that received anterior nasal packing. Obviously, some presented more than once. 125 of those episodes had non-absorbable packing put in, and 73% of those cases were given prophylactic antibiotics. In these patients with non-absorbable packing, there was just one episode of sinusitis, which actually was in the antibiotic group, and there were no further infectious complications. The other 150 patients had absorbable packing put in, for which 95% did not receive antibiotics. In this case, there was one case of sinusitis, but it was in a patient without antibiotics. And then again, there were no other infectious complications. Now, taking all the patients together, clearly there was no statistical difference in infection rates with or without antibiotics, and there was no patients with toxic shock syndrome. Now, mind you, there was also no harm caused by the antibiotics, but this would more easily be missed in the retrospective study that this was. In a spoonful, though tempting, and it feels right to do, this study was yet more evidence against prophylactic antibiotics after nasal packing. Next is the second article titled Compliance Phenotypes in Early Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome Before the COVID-19 Pandemic out of the American Journal of Respirology and Critical Care Medicine. COVID-19 has been a real pioneer as far as viruses go and showing us all kinds of new things right out of the gate. Now, with a little time to reflect, many of the oddities that we saw were not nearly as odd as we thought they were originally. Early on in the pandemic, there was an article published in JAMA that posited that there was two phenotypes in COVID-ARDS. There was the L-type for low elastance with high compliance and the H-type for high elastance with low compliance. The thought was that the L-type would not benefit from PEEP and that high tidal volumes could be used. Well, the H-type is more like the ARDS that we know and love, so the ARDSnet strategy could still benefit them. As it turns out, though, the whole paradigm was wrong. We should have just stuck with the ARDSnet ventilation strategy from the beginning for everybody. 
there are a couple ways to show that COVID-19 didn't cause some new kind of ARDS. These authors chose to show that the L-type phenotype was actually around before COVID-19, and that's how they proved it wasn't new. Now, this was a secondary analysis of a prior ARDS study called LungSafe, which was done in 2014 with 1,100 patients. An entire 12%, or 136 patients from this study, had preserved lung compliance. That's more than 50 milliliters per centimeter of water. In other words, the L-type phenotype. Which is notable because in 2014, there was definitely no COVID. Now, 42% of these non-COVID L-type patients had severe hypoxemia but there is no association between lung compliance and PaO2 over FiO2 ratios. However, as compliance increased, which is good, these are less diseased lungs, the odds ratio of dying decreased, which, hint, is also good. All this is great to hear because it means that we can keep on using evidence-based strategies from the pre-COVID age, which, believe it or not, was only a year ago, on the patients that we see today. In a spoonful, COVID's new L phenotype of low elastance and high compliance isn't so new at all. You can stick with the tried and true ARNSNET ventilation strategies without worry. And following that, we have the third article, which was titled Ultralong versus Standard Long Peripheral Intravenous Catheters, a randomized control trial of ultrasonographically guided catheter survival out of the annals of emergency medicine. Now, no matter where you work, no matter how good your nurses are, no matter even if you see mostly old patients or mostly young patients, you will no doubt be told the phrase, we can't get access on that patient. It's inevitable and it's even frequent. Many of these patients will manage to get lines with ultrasound guided insertions, thankfully. But these lines just don't tend to last as long as standard IVs, even if you go for that longer catheter, you know, that 4.78 centimeter catheter. And yet, if there's still less than 30% of the catheter actually in the vein, then you'll be lucky if that catheter lasts until the end of your shift. Now, early midline placement is becoming more common in the emergency department, but that takes extra training and costs money. So how about the next best thing? How about if we just had longer catheters? To address that question, the authors of the study did a prospective non-blinded RCT to compare survival rates of the currently available 20-gauge 4.78-centimeter-long catheters against ultra-long 6.35-centimeter 20-gauge catheters. The patient population was picked to be those screened to have medical conditions which suggested a difficult IV access or having already had a history of difficult IV access. The lines in the study were placed by what seemed to be pretty much anyone available, attendings, residents, nurses, techs, anyone, and all were placed proximal to the antecubital fossa. Now, these IVs were then followed by research staff to see how long they survived. For the ultra-long catheters, they survived a median of 44 hours longer compared with the standard long catheters. And if this catheter had at least 2.75 centimeters in the vein, then they lasted another 54 hours longer. The ultra-long catheters had less complications, so less infiltration and less cases of phlebitis. Now, unfortunately, those inserting the catheters just couldn't be blinded to the length of the catheters, but those following up on them were. Of course, it bears minding that this was an industry-funded study, but I think it seems pretty simple and a logical fix to a common problem. 
Longer catheters are effective. They don't require more training. So if you've got them, I'd say go for it. In a spoonful, to improve the survival of your next ultrasound-guided peripheral IV, reach for that really long catheter. Then we have the fourth article, which was titled Emergence of Extended-Spectrum Beta-Lactamase Urinary Tract Infections Among Hospitalized Emergency Department Patients in the United States Out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Oh man, okay, get ready for this, guys. I'm about to say the name of a whole bunch of bacteria. Now, I'm not going to claim that I say it the correct way, but I definitely say it the right way. As you may not have realized but are certainly familiar with, Enterobacteraceae is the family of bacteria that most commonly causes UTIs, among other infections, of course. The species names that you will no doubt recognize are things like Citrobacter, Enterobacter, E. coli, Klebsiella, Proteus, Salmonella enterica, Serratia marcensis, Shigella, and Yersinia. To treat these infections, a common fallback option to UTIs, particularly complicated ones, has long been ceftriaxone. But in the age of ever-growing antibiotic resistance, does this old classic still hold its own? This was a multi-center prospective study with 11 emergency departments participating in 2018 and 2019. There were 527 patients admitted from the emergency department with UTIs in this time, 84% of which were caused by Enterobacteraceae bacteria. Most of these UTIs had confirmatory testing from which there was a 17.2% prevalence of extended-spectrum beta-lactamases. Resistance to some other antibiotics is also seen, such as fluoroquinolones at 32% and gentamicin at 14%. As you might expect, when bugs were resistant to the usual guns, the time to treatment with an effective antibiotic was longer when resistance was present. Risk factors found in that 17% with extended-spectrum beta-lactamases were having received antibiotics in the last 90 days those in long-term care facilities, having a recent hospitalization, and those with prior antibiotic resistance. This is fairly concerning, so make sure that you work with your own infectious diseases teams and know your local resistance patterns. In a spoonful, the prevalence of extended-spectrum beta-lactamases among Enterobacteraceae bacteria, which was found in patients admitted from the emergency department with UTIs, was 17.2%. And finally, we have the fifth article, which was titled Intravenous Haloperidol versus Ondansetron for Cannabis Hyperemesis Syndrome, Havoc, a randomized controlled trial out of the annals of emergency medicine. Cannabis, cannabis, cannabis. Now that it's become legal in many places, we might actually start to get accurate answers when we ask patients how much they use this. But what's more important with more people using it is that we'll also see more side effects. One of the more dire side effects is Cannabis Hyperemesis Syndrome. Young daily users are most at risk, and for whatever reason, it appears to be more resistant to traditional first-line antiemetics. And with an emetic period of sometimes 48 hours, a decent treatment would be very appreciated by our patients. Anecdotal evidence appears to suggest that haloperidol may be effective, but let's put that to the test. This was a blinded, randomized, controlled crossover trial on regular cannabis users presenting with suspected hyperemesis syndrome out of two Canadian emergency departments. 33 patients were randomized to receive either 8 mg of IV ondansetron or haloperidol at 0.05 or 0.1 mg per kg. Abdominal pain and nausea was then measured on a 10cm visual analog scale. The patients that received haloperidol at any dose had larger reductions in abdominal pain and nausea within two hours compared with ondansetron, a mean difference of 2.3 centimeters on the scale. There was also higher rates of treatment success with haloperidol, 
at 54% versus just 29%. On top of that, patients were less likely to receive other medications, such as rescue antiemetics, benzodiazepines, or really just any other medication at all. And since we weren't busy giving them other medications, they were able to leave about two hours earlier at just 3.1 hours versus 5.6 hours in the undansetron group. Now, unfortunately, two patients in the high-dose haloperidol group did return to the emergency department with acute dystonia, though. Now, you may have noticed this was a small trial of just 33 patients, and authors struggled with enrollment. This isn't a very common condition to diagnose. As well, the trial was stopped early because of efficacy, which we know trends to overstating the actual effect size. In a spoonful, haloperidol was superior to ondansetron for the treatment of vomiting and abdominal pain associated with cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. And that wraps us up, so let's do a quick review of everything that we covered today. First, you'll probably just do whatever your ENT colleagues tell you to do, honestly, but this study still supports further not giving antibiotics after anterior nasal packing for epistaxis. After that, although it's gotten some new press, COVID's high compliance, low elastates, L phenotype isn't new at all. And you probably ought to stick with the good old-fashioned ARDSnet ventilation strategy despite the new label. Then, they say it's not about size, but, but guys, well, sometimes it's about size. A longer catheter for peripheral IVs placed under ultrasound guidance, well, they lasted longer. And next from a multi-center study out of the US, extended spectrum beta-lactamase antibiotic resistance was found in 17% of the common UTI bugs. And lastly, what goes down sometimes comes right back up, and in this case, it was the munchies. To help with that, Helperidol performed better than ondansetron for controlling abdominal pain and nausea in patients with cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. And now, you've earned them, we offer them. CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. And all the links to all the articles that we summarize can be found at the very same place, where, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.